Well, good morning. I also want to say Happy Mother's Day uh, to each of you today. As Kevin uh, had mentioned at the beginning, we conclude our series this morning in what has been called Opportunity in Exile. And in this series, we've looked at the fact that exile is experienced and felt differently by each person. Um, There are some uh, aspects of that that we feel personally, some aspects of that that we feel uh, as a church. Um, And it has many different faces and expressions. But as we, as a Christian church or community, realize that within our culture uh, in Canada today, that our values and uh, Christian beliefs are being pushed more and more to the margins, that's part of what we have been, uh, that is what we've been talking about throughout the series, and how do we respond to that. And through this series, as we've had many different people speaking uh, to this message, we've had uh, a number of the tensions that we've been unpacking that we feel also in this series, like the first tension of whether we actually are in exile, or are we just sort of moving more towards it in one way. We realize that as a Christian church, we still have a considerable amount of privilege, even though we are losing some. And we recognize that whatever expressions of uh, exile that we might feel that we have here in Canada, that it's nothing compared to the brutal exile that would have been experienced by the people that we read about in Scripture who were going through those events, or even people in other parts of the world who experience, experience persecution and hardships in ways that we actually uh, can't imagine. But it's been a helpful uh, understanding for us and a helpful metaphor for us to think about how to be the church in our context today. Another uh, tension that we've been wrestling with is how do we respond to what's changing? Do we just sort of roll over and be a doormat and just sort of let happen whatever is going to happen? Or do we actually stand up and fight and, uh, you know, with all that we've got? Or do we do something in between? We've also experience the tension of God's sovereignty and the role that God plays in all of this as well as our own choices and actions and what is it that we can realistically contribute? What is it that we can realistically change uh, as well? And so these and many more are just some of the tensions that we have felt and that we feel in this series. We've walked through the stories of Daniel, of Esther, of Jonah, and we've looked at the lessons taught in First Peter. And each of these biblical texts have helped guide us in our journey and to understand this more deeply in terms of how that we live in this and how do we respond. And so today as I was thinking of the conclusion of this series, I wanted to just summarize with some summary points uh, from this series, which is always a dangerous thing. And even as I come up with my own list, I think of all kinds of things that I would add or change, but, but here they are. Things that could remind us about the things that we've been talking about throughout this series and that we might actually embrace some of the opportunities that are found uh, in exile. And we're primarily going to focus on the text of 1 Peter. And I want to just uh, have us soak in that text. And we'll look at a number of texts as they uh, relate to this and to some of the summary pieces. Peter, as we know, is writing to this church that was experiencing persecution. And they were suffering a great deal. And he does so by reminding them that persecution and suffering actually brings clarity to your mission. And it actually helps you see the character and the faithfulness of God. And he reminds them as well that the real enemy is not other people. The real enemy is Satan and the dark spiritual forces that we are to continually claim our victory over. And so let's just dive into these seven points uh, from this series. The first point is the importance of identity. And Peter reminds 
these people in this church how critical it is to remember their new identity in Christ. Because when suffering and pain comes our way, the very first casualty is often identity. And the true enemy wants us to twist and turn with self-condemnation and inadequacy and completely distorted view of where our identity comes from. And as Peter speaks to these new Gentile Christians, he, he uses this Old Testament language and he, he draws them into the Hebrew story. And he uses the imagery that the Hebrews would have understood, but maybe it was new for these Gentile people. And, but he connects them into this story of identity as the people of God. And he starts to articulate it in a number of different descriptors. He says, you are a holy people in the wilderness. Even though you're foreigners and exiles in the land, you are a holy people in the wilderness. He says to them that you are new covenant people. No longer the covenant of Abraham or Moses, but the covenant of the blood and the body of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And so you are new covenant people. You are part of this new covenant together. He describes them and their identity as you are the new temple. And he's not saying to them, you will receive a new temple or get a new temple. He says you are the new temple. Living stones built into a spiritual house the dwelling place of God's Spirit. And he describes them as a kingdom of priests. And he says, you are a kingdom of priests. And just listen to some of these texts in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Peter is articulating to these folks, again, who are feeling marginalized and persecuted, he's reminding them of their identity in Jesus. The second point of summary is, just this fact that, that God is in control of who is in control. And I heard this line from a pastor and author named Larry Osborne as he was teaching about the story of Daniel. And he was articulating why Daniel was so effective in his context in terms of how he was living this embedded holiness in that context in Babylon. And it was because Daniel so clearly understood that it is God who puts kings and rulers in place. Whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or someone else. And so regardless of what we're experiencing or whoever is in government or whoever is in authority, we know that God is in control of who is in control. And Peter says it this way, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. When we understand this aspect of the sovereignty of God we can more effectively see and effectively engage in our culture in redemptive ways with the opportunities that are placed in front of us. Thirdly, we live with hope and optimism by keeping the end in mind. And you know, sadly for me, I often see where where Christian people and followers of Christ can be some of the sourest, most despairing people around. And yet, if we understand God's story and we know uh, God's story, there's no reason to be, regardless of our circumstances. Not only is God in control of who is in control, but we also know how the story ends. We don't have to despair or wring our hands wondering what will happen in the end. 
As Peter again says in chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And Peter goes on and he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. And so when we know how the story ends, it completely changes how we view the present. Now, this might be a bad example, but I'll try it. I know that not all of you watch hockey or have an interest in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and I get it. I don't watch that much hockey either, but that's mainly because we don't have cable. Um, but let's just say that you're a San Jose Sharks fan, and sadly, some of you are. Um, but you're a San Jose Sharks fan watching the first series, uh, round one, against the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Now, for those of you who are hockey fans or are fans of either of those teams, you know what happens in this story. But now imagine that you're watching these games on your PVR or whatever recording device that you use. And uh, you're watching it, so it's not live, but now you're watching it uh, after the fact. Now, many of you would know the story, but it was quite a remarkable ending, the way that series came to the end. The Sharks win the first game, then they lose the next three in a row. Doesn't look good at all. They're kind of up against the wall. It looks like they're facing elimination, but then they tie up the series. And they're in game seven, but now they're done th- down three nothing in the third period. And then, if you know the story, what happens is the Las Vegas Knights take a major penalty, and the Sharks go on to score four power play goals. And you think, this is incredible, but then Vegas scores a goal to send it into overtime. And now you could get depressed, throw in the towel, be all full of angst, but you're watching it on your PVR. And so you just kind of sit back and enjoy the drama and even get a little smug satisfaction when you think of the Las Vegas fans. And you watch as your team, the San Jose Sharks, scores in overtime and wins the series. So the point is, you watch that live, the emotional drama is unbelievable. But when you watch the recording, it's totally different because you know how the story ends. And there's... Such a parallel in some ways when we know how the story ends, when we know how the story of God ends, we respond and live differently. That's part of what Peter is trying to say and convey to these people. He's trying to convey to them that you can live differently because you know how this story ends. We serve King Jesus, the one who overwhelmed the grave and is the resurrected Savior, sitting at the right hand of the Father, coming to bring all things to completion in His timing. And that is why we can live with resurrection hope. Revelation 11.15, it, it points to this reality. It says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His, of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. Author Lee Beach calls it cultivating prophetic imagination. That we need to cultivate this prophetic imagination of actually seeing the kingdom of God and seeing the story of God in its completion as we live in our world today. And it's this refusal to be overcome by the circumstances around us that often speak of decline and demise and death, but that we serve a resurrected Jesus and that we can always have hope 
and that we know that God is in control of who is in control. We need to define reality, and sometimes we, we think that or we, we, we say that. That's important that we define reality, but we need to do so with spiritual reality, not just with human reality. And so we have to find uh, always our story placed into God's greater story. Peter, again, in, in chapter 5, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And then in Second Peter He says it this way. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Then fourthly, that we are to walk with humility and submission with those who oppose or disagree with us, but also submission to those who God has put in power. Daniel was so respectful to those that he would have otherwise considered his enemies. He submitted, he served, he lived this embedded holiness as his witness. You know, the truth is is that no one likes or listens to people who don't like or listen to them. And Daniel was one who lived intimately with people, led well amongst these people who would have been considered his enemies. And when we recognize, again, that God is in control of who is in control, we can do this and we can walk in humility and submit even when we're not in power. And again, these verses in 1 Peter chapter 2 remind us of that. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter also writes in chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Then he goes on to say, and he says, we do this because of Jesus. We do this because of the example of Christ. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. And when He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. And this is the call to live blameless lives. Wherever possible, we live with this intentional posture of humility. But there are also times when we need to draw the line. There are also times where we need to kind of put the mark in the sand. But the wisdom to know how to do that, which is my fifth point, is we need to pick our battles with wisdom. You see, Daniel and Esther were very clear to pick their battles. There were places where they drew the line in the sand. They would not go further, even push back in their own kind of way. But it's the wisdom to know how to do that and when to do that. And Paul, his strong emphasis throughout his letters to the churches is so often talking about do not compromise the witness. Do not compromise the collective witness of the church. There are battles worth fighting and battles that are not worth fighting. And so Paul is continually emphasizing don't do anything that will compromise your witness. So we need to pick our battles with wisdom. We do that in part by understanding and exegeting the culture and to understand our culture well in order to do this. It's been called like a theology of contextualization, of of understanding the context, finding the appropriate responses of the church to the culture that it finds itself in. Of a church not just being known for what it's against, but what it's for. 
but also not just being passive and just sort of submitting and, and rolling over and being silent when we actually should speak up or stand up. Again, author Lee Beach, he describes it this way. He says, it's living a life of engaged nonconformity. Living a life of engaged nonconformity. And this is the responsive theology of contextualization that anticipates that our culture and our church serve together, will be changed together, will benefit from each other, of recognizing that God is already present in the culture and in the context. We just need to join Him where He is at work. And so many of you do continuously in our schools, in our community associations, in your workplaces, in your sports teams, as you engage with people and see God at work. And then sixthly, that we would have a posture of blessing for the long haul. You know, blessing goes so much further than cursing or clamoring from a distance. And we've been talking throughout this series about the power of blessing and how blessing when it is done for the long haul, over a long period of time, it starts to develop trust. And then once trust is established, then people will actually give you the authority to speak into their life and into a context. But it comes typically with a long, faithful obedience in the same context and in the same direction. And you think of Genesis 12 where Abraham gets this call from God and it's this call to bring the blessing of God to the nations and the families of the earth. And it's this well-known passage where God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then we as the church have this invitation to join with that call and to bring that blessing to the nations of the world. Or you can go to Jeremiah 29 and we've been talking about that text in this series as well where God is speaking to the exiles and he says some similar things about having this long view, having this long kind of uh, trajectory of, of blessing in a place, even in exile. And in Jeremiah 29, 5 and 7, it says, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And he says, pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And even here in that text, we, we see the sovereignty of God where God says, you know, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. But he says, if, if this city prospers and if this context prospers, then you too will prosper. So bring blessing wherever God has placed you. And then seventh and lastly, just this idea that we need to continually look outward and to be a witness. This witness of embedded holiness. The church is a unique organization unlike any other organization. And one of the ways is that it actually exists for those who do not, who are not yet part of it. For those who are not yet here. So the church exists for those who are, are lost, for those who don't know Jesus. And this is the call of God's great co-mission as He invites us to join with Him in His mission. This co-mission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and, and the Holy Spirit. And so the call is, is to continually look outward, even when the tendency or the desire might be to do something different. But in all circumstances, to look outward with open hands. 
And the tendency when, when we feel attacked and in pain is to hunker down, draw everyone in, focus inward, and wait out the storm. But what Jesus calls us to do is to compassionately walk towards others in our culture who disagree with us and even make us fearful because we don't understand them and don't know them and we become fearful of the unknown. And so here's the thing. You know, just, just being a, a good person is actually not necessarily being a witness for Jesus. As some people have said, well, that's just being Canadian, actually. Canadians are just nice people, or at least we like to think we are. Um, but we are to go beyond that to give witness with our lives, to give witness with our words that point to Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ and the resurrection. And as it said in the video, that persecution of any kind can actually be a strange gift for the church. It provides opportunity to show others the extravagant love of Jesus in difficult times. And Paul, in the letter to Philippi, when he wrote that church, he was speaking to these people about being this kind of witness through their embedded holiness. And he said, you need to shine like stars in a dark universe. And when you understand Jesus' story and God's invitation for you to join that story, he says you can do that. And in First Peter verse three fifteen, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. It's interesting, even just a couple of weeks ago when I was on a flight uh, to California, there was a man sitting beside me who was a businessman. He had property in Vancouver, property in L.A. He was about 78 years old. It was his birthday that day, actually, he told me. And so we had this conversation about his family and what he was doing, and then he asked the inevitable question um, that I always find so interesting. So what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. That's often a conversation stop, a stopper. But he actually engaged me. He said, oh, wow. He says, so like, are you a believer? And um, I had a number of sarcastic thoughts in my head that I just kept quiet out, and I just said, yes, I am. And then, but then he said to me really honestly, he says, he says, good for you. He says, I don't know how you believe that stuff. And then we started talking about it, about what I did believe, and I could share a little bit with him about the hope that I have in Jesus. And afterwards, I'm thinking, oh man, I did such a lousy job of that. But, but it, gives, it gives an opportunity, and it's like, okay, God, thank you for the opportunity. And, and we talked about where we place our hope. And I pray that as we go forward as a church, that God would, would give us wisdom and give us strength and give us a deep love of lost people. And that we would see and respond to the opportunities that He presents to us each and every day. So Lord Jesus, I thank You for what You have modeled for us and the love that You have for us, Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, to keep our eyes on You. Thank You for the cross, that You died for us, that Your blood was shed for us. Thank You for Your incredible, grand story. And that You invite us into this story that our individual stories matter, but they actually only make sense in the context of Your bigger story. And so, Lord, we thank You for that. Help us to, to see more and more of what You have done and to see more and more of how You're calling us into this story. And Lord, I thank You that You draw near to people who are in pain, that You draw near to people who are being pushed to the margins. When we see these people in exile and the things that we can't even imagine that they were experiencing, these words from Peter of our identity... These words from Peter of the fact that God is in control. These words that you spoke to people who were facing different kinds of persecution. And God, would you speak to us today? 
And so we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to be faithful in return. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.